welcome you all to Door Creek tonight. My name's Mark, if you're a guest. And if uh, you're over at North Campus this morning, it's good to be with you and over in the chapel as well. A big shout out to all of you who were part of our Rooted Big Give last weekend. It was really big. It was like amazing. So thank you, all of you. So uh, $455,000 came in last weekend, which is like unbelievable. So thank you. So that means a bunch had already come in, like 75000 So we're up over $530,000 already towards, you know, this is all about doing more good for Christ in our community and around the world. And so as we commit together to go deeper in Christ, that we might reach farther for him, thanks for your part in this. And thanks for being part of that spiritual growth plan. And uh, Simplify, our new series, is all about helping us go deeper. So have you ever said to yourself, I can't wait till, and then you, you name the event, you name the date on the calendar, because then it'll be like, it, life will be normal again. Like there's some CPAs, right? Here's some accounts going, April 15th, I'm just hanging on. I can't wait till April 16th because, right? I can't wait till this project finally finishes and we meet the deadline because we've extended it so many times and how many hours am I gonna have to put in on the weekends? I can't wait. Honey, I can't wait till the baby sleeps through the night. Me too. Can't wait till they get out of diapers. Amen. Can't wait till we pay off the credit cards, till we get married and all the details and all this frenetic activity and the pressures of planning this great wedding day. Can't wait till the wedding. Can't wait till we retire because we're going to have a lot of time. Some of you are retired. You know why I'm smiling. You're as busy as ever. I can't wait till I, I pass my exams, till I finish residency. <laughs> I'm going to have a life again. Can't wait till I find the job. Honey, when, we, when I get this job, I know it's been a long time, but whew, just have some, some breathing room. Can't wait till vacation. Hang on. Once we get to vacation, then it's going to be, ha, ah, right? Have you ever said that? Are you thinking that right now? Have you heard yourself say that to someone important in your life right now? Oh, I've said it a lot to Lori. And what happens next is all too familiar. The thing that we thought would bring us that sense of, ah, some more margin in our life, some more normalcy in our life, uh, a, a sense of balance and this peace and tranquility that we're longing for, well, it comes and it goes, right? And then after it's happened, life happens. And sometimes really hard things in life happen, like, a crisis, or a storm, and we find ourselves in survival mode or something really hard, resources just vanishing, and uh, we're just wondering, what happened here? What happened? So, we know this is true, right? Life is crazy. We think we know why. We think we want to get through this other, this, this thing that's making it crazy. It's going to be great. Right? And then we find out, oh, there's something else. 
So in this world, so we're not living in the garden, right, where everything was perfect. And we're certainly not living in heaven where everything's made right. We're in the middle of the story, the murky middle of the story. Christ has come. His kingdom is unfolding. But yet he hasn't come back to make all things new. Can we expect to actually have a life that is marked with peace, with patience, with uh, satisfaction, with joy? Can we expect that? Jesus says, yeah, you can, you can. In fact, that's the very thing I give. This is our verse today. You can see it on the screen, Matthew 11. You can turn your Bibles, your smartphones, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that's what we want to look at today. What does rest look like in the middle of the story? Where do we find it? Jesus says we find it in him. So one of the things I think happens is we spiritualize and we hype up the expectations of what a Christian life should be. So we're Christ followers, and he says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And we go, I think I know what that means. Do we really know what it means? We cannot expect anything more than Jesus experienced, the perfect son of God who lived a perfect life, the one who came not just to bring us peace, but as the prince of peace. So it's good for us to catch up with Jesus and what his life looked like. And as we do, we will find great encouragement that, oh, I'm looking for something that probably isn't going to bring me peace. I, I'm probably picturing peace in a way that is all marked by these externals. I'm thinking about peace like, oh, this quiet, reflective lake, the morning fog, the sun rising. And I look at Jesus and it looks a lot more like a hurricane. So be prepared as we go back and look what rest looks like for Jesus. To look at where Jesus in the middle of the craziness of his life found rest. All right, so that's where we're going. So we go back to the beginning of his life. We don't know much about his birth, except we know the hymn writer was wrong when the writer of the great carol away in the manger wrote, no crying he makes. Really? Jesus never cried? So what do you know about his birth? Well, we know when he was born, the Magi went to, Pharaoh, uh, to Herod looking for this promised king. The religious leader said he's to be born in Bethlehem and off they go. And they never go back to report about him. And so Herod, he's paranoid and he sends his troops to go kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. The angel Gabriel comes to Joseph at night and says, you need to flee. So in the middle of the night, from his sleep, baby Jesus, Mary gets him up, she bundles him up, and off he goes. 
We keep following. He gets lost in the temple. He's only 12. Three days, parts of three days. He doesn't know mom and dad. That was not a pleasant time, even though what the Bible tells us about it, he was there in the temple teaching the leaders about God in the temple. What do we know is adult life, where he's living this life that always pleased the father. There's conflict everywhere. There's spiritual conflict with the devil, with demonic forces. There's relational conflict, right? He's got conflicts in his hometown, at his home church. The people hear him preach, and they want to take him to the brow of the hill of Nazareth and push him over and kill him. There's misunderstandings with John's disciples. Are you really the Messiah? His own disciples, his own family. We're told in Mark chapter three, verse 21, come to take Jesus away because they don't believe Jesus is in a right frame of mind. They want to get him to the rest home because he's losing it. His cousin's beheaded. He's weeping over Jerusalem. The religious leaders harass him, oppose him, slander him, call him a drunkard, call him the devil. The pressure of the crowds, they're crushing on him. They want to touch him. Large crowds following, Matthew 8, 1 says. They look to him for teaching. The crowds crush in. He's got to go to the boat to get in the water to get away from the crowd. They go to him for healing. They want to touch him. The blind, the crippled, the mute, others, they lay him at his feet. They want him to heal their friends and their daughters and their sons. The disciples want Jesus to send them away. Jesus says, take care of the crowd. Feed them, guys. He cares about their spiritual needs, their physical needs. He has compassion on them. People say, I want to follow you. Jesus says, well, just make it clear. I don't have a place to call home. He's homeless. This one, the Prince of Peace, let's see him when he's clearing the temple, confronting the injustice of the religious establishment who would be making money off the poor in, of all places, the temple. And just see him. He's righteously angry. There's a, a flesh tone that's not typical. His muscles are flexing as he grabs the tables and turns them over. His hand clenches the whip as he drives them out from this place, what is to be a house of prayer. In his agony, he's sweating as if it were drops of blood, pleading with the Father to remove the cross of the, of the, the cup of the cross, the crucifixion. His disciple Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. Most of the band abandon him. He's falsely arrested. He's convicted. He's beaten. He's humiliated. He's mocked. He's murdered on a Roman cross. And yet the Prince of Peace knew peace. We get a picture of it when he's asleep in the storm and the disciples got to wake him up. We get a picture of it. He's got peace and we realize this peace is not about my circumstances. It's something other than that. It's something deeper than that. And I think most of us know that's true. Because we've had the if-onlys and wait until, and we've been through those, and we found out, ah, it's not about a place. It's not just about a pace. It's something more than the external things in my life. 
Jesus comes and he offers us a soul-satisfying rest. Jesus prepared his life of ministry in the wilderness, but that's not where he lived. That's not where we go to finally find happiness and sadness. Just get away from it all. The ascetics tried that. Jesus prepared in the wilderness, but he lived in the world in the midst of crazy chaos. So where did Jesus find rest in the midst of his life? Well, the answer is you look at the New Testament, it was very simple. He found it in his relationship with the Father. So when the Bible starts unpacking rest, going back to the Israelites' promised rest in the land of Canaan, the land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, we realize the Bible works it out like this. Rest is not found in a place, but in a person. And that's what the wilderness was all about for Jesus, connecting with the Father, intimacy with the Father. That was his custom as he communed and communed with the Father. So we read this in Luke 5, 16. Jesus often withdrew. It was his custom, right? This is what he did all the time. To lonely places and what? Prayed, talked to the Father. Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he read the journal. No, no, where he prayed. He's communing. Jesus found rest in his relationship with the Father. And so what we notice about where Jesus finds rest is through communion, communing with the Father. It's, it's, it's just the pattern. So we, we read, just listen to me read through these verses. Mark 6, 46, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Luke 6, 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Luke 9, 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and he went up on a mountain to pray. John 6, 15, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. We can assume, presume, to pray. The night before the crucifixion, Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And we know he went there a lot because Judas said, I'll take you to him. I know where he's going to be. He's communing, but he's trusting. He trusted the Father. He's submitting to the Father. That submission is marked by obedience. That is his food. My food is to do the will of the Father, the one who sent me to finish his work. He knew the Father's will. He was about it, and he submitted to it. Luke twenty-two forty-two. He prays this in the garden. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. How did Jesus find rest in the craziness of life in the middle of the story? Through the relationship with his father, communing with the father, trusting. That's how this relationship works, by faith. He's worshiping. This too was his custom. We read in Luke 4, 16. He went to Nazareth, right? That's his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. 
And so he's worshiping as he communes. It's his pattern each week to get to the synagogue with God's people, to worship God, to stop from his work, to do good and heal and enjoy God's people. Where did Jesus find rest? In his relationship with the Father and through the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. He was guided by the Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we read Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus finds rest through his relationship with the Father. And Jesus offers us rest through relationship with him that takes us to that same Father. So go back to Matthew 11, verse 28. Come unto me. This is Jesus. He's saying it to you right now today. He's inviting us. Come to me, all you who are weary, worn out, you're burdened, and I will, not I might, I hope, no, I will give you rest. Now, rest is contingent on what? What is it? Coming, taking up his offer. He's not going to put us in a full Nelson. He's not going to cuff us and drag us to himself. He invites us, come, take my yoke upon you. You take it, put it on, and learn from me as you're yoked to me. Learn that I'm gentle, not harsh, humble, not proud. And you will find rest. Not just outside. You'll find a rest in your soul that'll walk into any storm so that you can say, I got a peace that I don't understand. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So notice that Jesus offers us himself a relationship, not a recipe. I love it. We were talking, as we do each week in staff, do the text of the week, and John Anderson was saying, you know, isn't it great that Jesus is offering a relationship with himself, not a recipe for brownies? It was good. Because we're really into how-tos. Because, man, life is busy. Give me the quick fix. Give me the three steps. Because I want to do the work. I want to get through this. Jesus says, I'm offering you myself a relationship. I'm not a rabbit's foot. I don't want part of you. I want all of you. Because I died for all of you. A relationship, not a manual. A relationship, not a seminar, not a course. And who's invited to this relationship? All who are weary from carrying the weight of those burdens. Now, weariness is different than pain. 
I mean, pain can make you weary, but weariness is a result of ongoing burdens, not just today's difficulty. Weariness is often not, a, not one thing, but the accumulation of things over time that are wearing you out. And some of them have just to do with the circumstances of our lives. Your young mom chasing toddlers, you're weary. That's just what it is. Some of us are weary because the three things or the four things have happened. And it's this accumulation. It's this accumulation. It's this accumulation. I so remember the year 2003. Lori had been diagnosed with breast cancer, five kids under 17. From five to 17, doctors said she's not going to make it. My dad's got pancreatic cancer. He's got to go in for surgery about the same time as Lori's going in for her surgery. He said, you need to have a stress test. Took a stress test, found out his heart wasn't good. He needed a quintuple bypass. Has a quintuple bypass. Seemed like everything went well until two days later, he almost bled to death. Lori's going through chemo. It's not good. Radiation, it's really difficult. Don't know where it's all going. And then lightning strikes out of a clear blue sky the Friday before Mother's Day. Without a word, without any notice, I get the call. Mark, your mom died. My dad calls me. Dropped out of a heart attack. So it's, it's just, it's accumulation, right? People say it always happens in threes, right? Why, why do they say that? I don't know, but it's just a lot of times it's like that. So fast forward, we're in the fall. Lori's got her radiation and chemo behind her, kind of coming out of survival mode. We're hopeful, no promises, no blood markers to check, check and make sure that everything's good. We don't know any of that. Recent grief of my mother, my dad seems to be on the men. We're up at Boys Brigade on the fourth floor of College Church and we're playing sharks and minnows, Luke 6. The dads are in the back. The sharks say whatever they say and all the minnows run to the other side. They don't want to get caught by one of the kids that's a designated shark. And I could see as this crowd of boys starts running in front of me and dad's in the mix of it that all of a sudden one of the kids just went down. Well, that was Luke. Stepped on his shoelace. Didn't get his hands out. Smacked his head on the concrete. By the time I got to him, he was seizing up, having a seizure. I remember being kneeling over my son, grabbing my phone out of my pocket, giving it to my friend. I said, call 911. And I was done. That was it. I said, God, I, I can't do this anymore. And some of us are right there now. I can't do it. And you know what? It doesn't have to be about cancers. And it doesn't have to be about deaths. And it doesn't have to be about a, a child that's seizing. It could just be the burdens that we're bearing where finally we go, I can't do it. I've been trying and trying and trying. I can't. Jesus, come. Come. John six thirty seven. Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. 
See, we're believing all kinds of lies that are, that are adding to the craziness of our lives. So we're chasing to the other things besides Jesus. Jesus is calling us to a relationship that brings rest. And we're chasing all the other things that we think will bring rest. And we're buying the lie, not only that those things will be, bring rest, but that Jesus would never want me. The crap in my life? No way. And we believe that. Let's hear God's word. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever, that's you, friend, whoever comes, I will never, I'll never drive you away. My arms are open. They were open on the cross for you. They're open today. And so Jesus offers us rest to be freed from these wearying burdens. And so the question is, so, so how do I find that? What does it mean to take on Jesus' yoke? What in the world is a yoke? All right, so let's just go back to this agrarian culture because everybody that heard Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. So here's a picture. A couple of oxen here that are yoked together. So it's this crossbeam that joins the animals together and often then becomes the connector to the plow or the cart that these beasts of burden are going to carry and move forward. So he, he calls us to come under his yoke, which we might think, man, that, that looks hard. It seems like it's going to be restrictive. Like, once I'm yoked to Jesus, I can only go where Jesus goes. I don't know. I might have a better way. I might want to go left when he wants to go right. I don't know. Jesus doesn't give us a yoke. He says, take my yoke. Come under my yoke. Let it rest on you. Come under my leadership. The very beginning of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. They're in the relationship with the king. We got to humble ourselves. That's what he's calling us to do. Take up my yoke. Take it up. Submit to me. Come under my leadership. Trust me, you and I are yoked to something, to someone. Jesus is the only yoke that brings us to rest. Jesus' burden, if you will, is light and easy. It gives life. It satisfies. It brings joy. All the other burdens that we're yoked to destroy us. So we put on this yoke through faith. In fact, chapter 11 is all about unbelief. Go back to chapter 11 at the beginning. We read about John's disciples that are on message from their rabbi, John, who's in prison and who's scratching his head. Because he thought when he baptized Jesus, he was the Messiah who would come and conquer and he's in jail. 
and his circumstances are pushing against his expectation of who this Jesus is, and he's doubting. So he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus says, well, go back and tell him, verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. He's quoting right out of Isaiah's prophecy. I'm the one. In verse 16, Jesus lets us know that this whole generation is, is struggling with faith. They're unbelieving. They're not responsive to the word, to the prophets, even to Christ. And so they're like children in the marketplace who play the game where they, they start getting out these musical instruments and when the, when the, when the flute plays and, and when the band strikes, the kids dance. We see that. Kids start dancing when there's music. But he's saying there's no response because there's no faith. And it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than these towns who had more revelation through the prophets and through Christ. He talks about impending judgment. And right before verse 28, Jesus reminds us, verse 27, that all things have been committed to him by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's all about faith, the lack of faith, and coming to Jesus is all about trusting him, trusting him in with, with my life so that I can actually submit to his leadership and come under his leadership and learn about the gentleness of this Savior, the humility of this Savior, and the rest of this Savior. That gives me a soul-satisfying rest. Now, some of us have confused a decision for this life of faith. Oh, I, I, I once did that. No, this is like every day. Some of us aren't experiencing rest right now, not because we don't know and trust Jesus Christ, but it's something we did in the past and we forgot. No, that's I, I, every day. That's every day. And so we find ourselves trusting in other things for satisfaction, for significance, for security. When trusting in Jesus every day is that Jesus is enough every day for all I'm facing every day, for all that's pressing in against me every day, that, that buoys me as my ballast every day. And as we trust and are yoked to him, we're learning that's what we're doing as we're opening up the word. Are you in Acts? Are you in that New Testament reading plan? We're in Acts right now, right? We're learning about Jesus and his followers. We're praying for the day and throughout the day. And when we're, when we're trusting and we're, we're taking on his yoke in faith, what we're doing is we're, we're turning away from the other things that I've been yoked to. It's a big thing. When Jesus says, I, I, I've come preaching the kingdom of God, it's now at hand. He says, repent and believe. Turn away from all the stuff that you've been trusting in and hoping for and believe in me. And so when we come under the yoke, part of what we're doing as we're trusting him is we're turning away. We're throwing out the other yokes. 
We're refusing to be yoked to that for any hope that only Christ can bring. Jesus doesn't want to be a category in our life, but a king over our lives. He doesn't want to have a part in your life. He wants to be the purpose. And when Jesus is, the, is not the king, he's just a category. We're not living by faith. We're brokering a deal. We're just adding Jesus to the other things that we're yoked to, thinking that somehow we can have a yoke going with Jesus here and a yoke going with something else here. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so it's important for us to understand it's faith in Christ that brings rest, balance. So the margin that we're looking for has everything to do with being yoked with Jesus, teamed with Jesus, doing life with Jesus. So what they would do oftentimes with one of the younger oxen is they'd team them with one of the older ones so, so they'd learn the drill. They'd come alongside. They'd learn the cadence. They'd learn how to be led as they're teamed to this one who follows the master's will. Jesus calls us to be yoked to him in faith and to confess all that is not faith in our life. And one of the things that we need to understand is not only are there circumstances in our life that wear us out, but there's this life of unbelief that wears us out. See, the Bible makes it real clear that sin is unbelief. It's a lack of faith. And so we want to turn away from this lack of faith, trusting in things that aren't God, that aren't of Christ, to turn away from those things. And what we need to understand is when we have our hope set on things that aren't God, they wear us out. When we, when we turn away from God and allow those things to break our hearts and our relationship with God, they waste us away. David is talking about this very thing in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Again, David in Psalm 31.10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my body has wasted away. But the scripture says repentance brings refreshment. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, forgiven, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord who is gentle, who receives us, who wipes it clean and reminds us of who we are in him, not who we are in our sin. Repentance is all about having a change of mind. So you want to find rest? You want to come under his yoke? Then we need to repent from these things and have a change of mind to go, I've been chasing this. Because I thought that would deliver. That's not delivering. That's rooting my, I thought having a great career. And so I've been out of control in the work thing. Work is like everything. And it is my idol right now that I hope is going to bring me what I need. Whatever it is. Significance. Security. And, and I turn away from that. I have a change of mind and go, no, that's not good. Because it's not sustainable. It's wearing me out. It's not good. Because my kids don't even know who they are. I don't even know anything about my kids' world other than I know their names. And I know where they sleep at night. 
It's ruining my mind. I have a change of mind. This isn't good. And then I confess that, what God already knows. I confess it to God. I've been trusting in this and not in you. And I confess it to my wife. And you can do this as a pastor. You can put your ministry and make it your mistress. You confess it to those who you have hurt. And then there's contrition. There's actually an emotional engagement over my sin, not just an intellectual regret over the consequences of my sin. Worldly sorrow is just that. I'm engaged with the consequences. I feel so bad. What do you feel bad about? Well, my life is like a train wreck now. My reputations, my wife, all this stuff has happened, and I feel so bad. What do you feel bad about? The consequences. That is not repentance. Repentance begins with, God, I sinned against you and you only. And I go to those that I've offended. And there's actually an emotional engagement that has everything to do with the cross and the pain that I've caused. And then that last C, from a change of mind to confession to contrition, is this commitment to obey by God's grace. I want to follow in the path that gives life. I don't want to go back to it. I don't want to go back to it. And the minute I get pulled back to it, I'm coming back. I've got a commitment. I don't want to do that anymore. I've got to change of mind. That's bad. And so Jesus says, I promise a soul-satisfying rest. And some of us in this room would tell you we have found it in the craziest of times. We've had this overwhelming sense of peace in a storm where we didn't know what was going to happen. I remember that settled peace coming down as I was up there in the, in the, in the emergency room, intensive care. Our daughter just in a horrific accident. The doctor said 24 hours, it's going to be life or death. We don't know what's going to happen with all these fractures in her skull and all the bleeds. And then God just gave me a peace. And it wasn't because I knew she was going to make it. He just gave me a peace. There was nothing about the circumstances that led me to that place. And God says, I want to give you that peace. The Bible talks about this peace. This peace that Jesus gives, it's not of this world. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Jesus has something that there, there's nothing else that you're chasing and filling your lives with that will deliver unique listen to this read this verse as silently as I read it out Philippians 4 do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer talking to God and petition asking God for help with thanksgiving for his provision present your request to God let him know what's on your heart and the peace of God which transcends all understanding it blows your mind beyond comprehension. Will guard, will protect, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, what does this have to do with simplify? What does it have? Connect the dots because I hear what you're saying. What does this have to do? Well, the context is Jesus says, I, I reveal the Father. And when you connect to me, you learn about God 
And what you learn about God exposes these false yokes that you've been teamed and tied up to. These things that are burdens, they're actually making life harder for you. It not only exposes the lie, but it shows the beauty of who Christ is, of who God is through Christ, and what is ours in him. And all of a sudden we find out we have what we need in him. He is sufficient. And so we've been talking about what are these external and internal drivers that come underneath the craziness and the imbalance of our lives. And we talked about the external ones. Now just think about some of the internal drivers like fear. So, you know, some of us are, are packing our schedules full because we're, we're afraid that we're going to miss out. We're, we're, we're afraid to say no when we've been working 60 to 80 hours because we, we may lose the job and the job is my security and on and on the dominoes go and if I say no, I could lose the job and if I lose the job, then this means that and that means this and then I can't and, and all of a sudden, I'm yoked to a job. That's my hope. That's my security. And Jesus comes and he says, I, I want you to see who God is. In the midst of the craziness of your life, I want you to learn of me. And as you learn of me, you learn of the Father who loves you. The Father who has all power. The Father whose beauty will get you over yourself. Some of us, actually, if we just looked at the picture and we asked ourselves, who's in the picture? Who am I yoked to? A lot of us would say, me. It's just me. I'm a tough oxen. And I've been pulling it by myself. And you know what? Until we get over me, we'll never get under Jesus for rest. And so much of what we're chasing is our own insecurities. It's our pride. It's all the stuff. We, we think sometimes, that, oh, my life is so crazy, but I, I can't help it. I mean, it's, it's work's fault. It's the kid's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's, it's whatever. It's this. And you know what? It's us. It's us. It's us. And Jesus says, it's me. It's me. It's me. So Jesus comes to us, and he asks us today, who are you yoked to? Who are you yoked to? Have you come under Jesus in faith and taken up his offer for rest? Is it time to go back because we've lost our way? We've added all these yokes. We got yokes that have nothing to do with Jesus. We're trusting in all kinds of things. And Jesus is the only burden that gives life. Everything else, the scripture says, steals, kills, destroys. Do you pray with me? The prophets remind us that in returning and rest, we'll be saved. In quietness and trust, we'll find new strength. But Isaiah reminds us they were unwilling Jesus said of his generation, they were unwilling. Friend, you may, you may think right now that my life is good. I really, I'm not weary. I'm good. I don't have burdens. 
And I want you to catch up with those stories in your life and around you where people are under some really trying things. And put yourself in their shoes. And what would you be holding on to? Jesus is enough, and he calls us to come. And I believe this week there are many who the Spirit of God is working and calling, and you're hearing the invitation, and you know you're worn out. And you're intrigued by a Jesus who would carry your burdens, who'd set the pace, who'd give direction, who would teach us and strengthen us, and in being yoked, free us. Find that it's easy, that I don't have to be anything. I just need to rest. And so I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you're ready to place your trust in Christ, I want you to hear it, and then quietly I want you to pray it. It goes like this. Dear God, forgive me for thinking I'm good enough to earn a relationship with you. Forgive me for all I've done and left undone. I believe Jesus is your son who died for me, and I trust in him alone for rest and surrender my entire life to his leading. Give me your spirit to help me follow your son. And so, Lord, we come and we confess even as our heads and hearts are bowed, it's in you that we find rest. Without you, here's what we know that we fall apart, that things break apart. You're the one who holds and guides our heart. And so, Lord, we need you. And we thank you that you don't drive us away, but you suffered in the chaos to bring us to yourself. And so, hear us as we pray. Dear God, forgive me for thinking I'm good enough to earn a relationship with you. Forgive me for all I've done and left undone. I believe Jesus is your son who died for me. And I trust in him alone for rest and gladly surrender my life to his leading. Give me your spirit to help me follow your son. In whose name we pray, amen.